You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samara and Usman Manan, and we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our uh, socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, We're going to be speaking about some very interesting topics today. Uh, Giving Tuesday, uh, as it is uh, 29th November, Um, this is going to be what we discuss in the first hour after going Going through the uh, the news roundup in the second hour we're going to be speaking about two uh, two more topics cold crisis in our quarters human health and uh, homeostasis and in the last hour we're going to be speaking about veganism as it is world vegan month um, here in November just coming to an end now um, so these are the three main topics for the day like I said if you would like to get involved in any one of the discussions then do pick up the phone and give us a call zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you um before getting into uh our main topics of course we will be addressing uh the newspaper headlines for the day as well um but of course uh, we will be beginning with the weather um but first of all usman how are you doing today the grace of Allah, I'm, I'm good. Alhamdulillah, how are you? Very good, very good too. By, uh, by the grace of Allah, the Almighty. Um, so, so what's the what's the weather looking like today? Yeah, today is. Uh, if you if you know if you're outside already, you know it's, it's quite foggy and uh, a lot of mist. Uh, it's slowly clearing, and this afternoon we'll have plenty of sunshine uh, in the north, but uh, extensive areas of low cloud will persist in the south. So a largely dry a dry day. Um, overall mm-hmm. and tonight um, in the central and southern areas we'll see um, areas of low cloud mist and fog developing again clear skies for northern Scotland northern Ireland and the southwest <coughs> the odd shower likely in, in Shetland tomorrow a foggy start to the day for many fog lifting later but remaining mostly cloudy a brighter day in part uh, in parts of southwest and the far north, cloudy with some rain in the northwest. Um, and uh, on the Thursday, higher pressure to the north will give a strengthening easterly flow starting Thursday, continuing into Friday and Saturday. It will, <coughs> it will trend colder and some overnight frost is expected where skies are clear. Despite staying dry for many, there will be some large areas of cloud moving into eastern areas, leaving the chance of light rain or snow in the highest ground. So uh, from from Thursday onwards, you'll 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 start uh, you'll have to start you know scraping the ice off your yeah. car. Uh, it might snow in the, in the high areas. So mm. winter is coming. Yeah, yeah, no, no, most certainly, most certainly. Um, we'll be getting into uh, the news uh, headlines now as well. 
Um, just uh, as as most of the uh, newspaper are on this topic anyway uh, of uh, of football, um, so I think we'll we'll start um, by uh, by going through the fixtures for today. Um, the the matches that we have are at three o'clock um, is going to be Group A. So Ecuador and Senegal will be playing, uh, and Netherlands and uh, Qatar will be going head to head. And then from Group B uh, later on at seven o'clock. It's going to be Iran and USA and uh, a British um, a, um, a face-off, Wales and England as well. So both of these games will be at 7 o'clock um, and the earlier ones that we mentioned, Ecuador, Senegal and uh, Netherlands and Qatar will be facing at 3 o'clock. Um, so getting into the newspaper headlines, Battle of Britain and the end of golden era with China. So several of Tuesday's uh, papers look ahead to the crucial clash between England and Wales. The Sun describes the first all-British World Cup uh, clash as do or die, uh, spelt D-A-I. England will progress to the knockout stages as group winners uh, uh, with a victory in Doha on Tuesday evening. Meanwhile, Wales progress if they win by four goals, but any margin will do if USA and Iran draw, according to what the paper has said. Similarly, with the Daily Star, um, also looks ahead to Tuesday evening's crunch game. Both nations can still qualify with the paper dubbing this the Battle of Britain. Mm-hmm. The Daily Mirror reports on Gareth Southgate's promise to match the spirit and energy of the Welsh national team when they meet in the final group match. Away from the football, Rishi Sunak has signalled that Um, signal the end of the golden era of relations between Britain and China using his first foreign policy speech to warn of the creeping um, authoritarianism of Xi Jinping's regime. The Guardian reports uh, the Prime Minister has thrown his support behind Covid protesters in China and condemned Beijing's crackdown as well as an assault of a BBC journalist. The Financial Times also features the latest on the crackdown against protesters in China on its front page, but if it leads, uh, but but it leads with reports the European Central uh, Bank, the ECB, um, is not done with raising interest rates despite signs that inflation is easing. Um, according to comments made by its president, Christine Lagarde, this uh, is despite a sharp fall in European wholesale energy prices, combined with an easing of supply chain bottlenecks, encouraging hopes that eurozone inflation is slowing, the paper says. Uh, and according to uh, uh, what Lagarde says, um, inflation still has a way to go, quote unquote. Her comments indicating that the ECB is not ready to slow interest rate rises um, and this is what the paper has said and the eye leads with suggestions there is a growing rebellion within the conservative party over onshore wind farms the paper reports the prime minister is poised to u-turn on his promise to maintain the 2015 ban on new onshore wind his predecessors boris johnson and liz truss have joined a growing tory revolt to allow new wind farms in rural areas. 
The Culture Secretary is warning that social media giants will face severe punishments, uh, including multi-million pound fines, if they fail to stop young children using their platforms, The Time reports. Michelle Donlan accused social media companies of prioritising profits over people with a devastating impact on children. New amendments to the online safety bill being tabled on Tuesday will require social media companies to inform parents of how they will enforce minimum age limits. The Telegraph also reports on the changes being proposed to the online safety bill on Tuesday. According to new amendments to the bill, firms that do not follow their own terms and conditions, including on age limits, will face fines of up to 10% of their global turnover for Meta. The parent company of Facebook and Instagram, that would be up to £10 billion. Wow. Thousands of NHS patients are being sent abroad for treatments uh, as uh, as record, uh, record waiting lists hold up routine operations, the Daily Expo, uh, Express reports. NHS figures reveal a total of 5,330 patients having uh, travelled to clinics across Europe since 2020. And the Daily Mail reports on Labour's plan to scrap tax breaks for private schools, with the paper suggesting it could threaten the closure of around 200 institutions. Labour says its plan, its plans to scrap the charitable status of private schools would raise £1.7 billion for the Treasury, but critics say it could cost the taxpayer £400 million a year because more people would be educated in the state system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, the Metro leads with claims from the wife of the Ukrainian president that uh, Russian troops are being ordered to use sexual violence as weapons of war. Speaking at a conference in London, uh, Alina Zelenska uh, alleged some Russian wives were urging their husbands to rape Ukrainian women's, uh, uh, women, according to what the paper has said. Wow. Um, uh, but before, I think we'll be moving on to the the the, the uh, our main discussions for the day in just a short while. Uh, but before we do so, Osman, was there anything which uh, um, specifically uh, caught your eye, or, um, whether it's in regards to the front pages that we've gone through, uh, or maybe even within the uh, he- um, the newspapers as well? Uh, yeah, this this last one, um, this this claim of uh, you. The president, the wife of the Ukrainian president. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a harsh claim. I don't think she can speak for all the women in Russia. And uh, clearly, you can see this is a statement out of like hatred and so uh, a bit confusing to me. Like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, but 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 on the other hand, if if that is happening, then of course that is a. Uh, uh, a very extreme thing to to do, and of course, like you're right, it, it wouldn't be every single one of them. Um, but mm-hmm. even if some are doing that, that's a that's a that's a terrible way um, to to get the the the, the, the uh, to get the uh, one side up, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, it's always been a, like I would say tradition in wars that um, uh, the men, you know, um, misusing the enemy's woman Um, however this again I would like to mention is against Islam here because Islam does not even allow to 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 harm the trees of the enemy's territory yeah let alone the woman Mm. so uh, I'm not defending uh, anyone here but it's just uh, just that 
just making it clear that uh, this is a big statement from her side. Yeah. And bringing proof for something like this is is also a big uh, responsibility. Yeah. And I think this this war is uh, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of uh, you know finger pointing and stuff, but I don't see much evidence. Um even recently with the, with the there was a there was an attack a drone attack I think on Poland. Um, and the Ukrainian Prime Minister straight away pointed a finger at Russia. Mm-hmm. It was the Russians. And it turned out that it, w- it was a misfire of the Ukrainians themselves, I think. Yeah. So uh, that's what I'm saying. There's a lot of confusion here. And the, the papers obviously don't make it easy yeah. to to make it clear either. Um, but apart from that, I'm looking forward to the to the game tonight between uh, Wales and England. Oh, yes. Uh, two great captains here, Gareth Bale and Harry Kane. Mm-hmm. But I think England will come out on top here. Um, yeah, no, God willing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, and and uh, on on that as well. I mean, it's it is essential to 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 mention over here as well, since we're on the topic. Um, is that uh, Islam? I mean, within the Holy Quran, we've seen uh, many a time uh, on numerous occasions it, when it's speak, when it's speaking about war. Um, then it says that the opponents um, they 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 capture your women and your children, um, and of course uh, the, for for the purpose of abusing them um, mm. and uh, and and getting them away from their households and from their tribes and from their families. Um, but Islam, we can see that uh, um, when they when Islam was going through the defensive wars, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he made it evidently clear that uh, you you do not uh, strike uh, any women uh, or children um, and you should mm-hmm. uh, you should always be mindful of these things like you mentioned plants trees uh, wells and other such things crops um, the the muslims were ordered to to not um, attack these things because of course these are uh, a, a means of sustenance yeah they're um, no part of the war not exactly. just, not just uh, women and children any yeah. man who refuses to fight yep. who is who's not uh, you know taking up arms against you you're not allowed to harm him you're not allowed to go uh, fight with him so a uh, war is specifically and very strictly only for defensive reasons yeah um, sometimes you have to go on the attack first mm-hmm. that does not make it offensive or it's still in a, it's, uh, in a defensive tactic yeah. yeah so yeah in this sense it's not just women and children and trees it's yeah. any man or any grown strong soldier who yeah. refuses to fight with you who um, says that I, I give up you're not allowed to harm him mm-hmm. whereas in uh, other circumstances you see that other people they, they'll kill the children of of uh, let's say a king just because they know he will he will grow up later and exactly. rebel against yeah. me yeah. so this is something uh uh, also, a very beautiful thing about Islam that if people who are fighting against you, who are rebelling against you, only those those are the ones which you can fight, and the only purpose is self defense yeah. and uh, sustaining peace in that country. Yes, most certainly. Um, and with that, we're going to be going to our main um, topics for the day. Just a quick reminder for you. Um, the first, uh, uh, in this first hour, we're going to be speaking about Giving Tuesday, um, as it is the 29th of November. Um, in the, after the news, 
We'll be addressing the cold crisis uh, in our quarters uh, in regards to human health. And last but not least, um, as it is November again, we we will be speaking about World Vegan Month as well. So these are the topics for the day. Remember, if you would like to get involved in any one of the discussions, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 8 and of course, you can uh, hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. So just after some major shopping and splurging days, such as Black Friday, for instance, uh, with the holiday season brewing, we must take a step back to ask ourselves how we might give back to the community. And that is precisely what this segment will explore in light of glo- the, the global generosity movement giving Tuesday from organizing a community fridge to a mere kind word. There are many ways one can give this Tuesday. So, um, Osman, before we get into the timeline and speak about what these things actually are, um, yeah. I mean, could, could you explain a little bit about what this, uh, what this is giving Tuesday, the 29th of November? Yeah, essentially it's very clear Giving Tuesday, but um, basically this was created as a day to encourage giving in all all its forms. Over the past decade, the idea of this has grown into a global generosity movement that uh, in, inspires millions to celebrate and support their causes, charities and com- communities, hopefully continuing it beyond winter. Um, it is no surprise that the Global Day of Giving falls on the Tuesday after the American Thanksgiving to help kickstart the giving season, uh, which is December. Um, the giving month is considered December. Uh, it serves as a reminder that there is more than there's more to the holidays than consumerism and uh, commercialization. Since the day trails three major shopping days: Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, and Cyber Monday. So after all these uh, big big spending days uh this whoever started this movement is such a great great uh, way to uh you know realize uh, to to uh, make people realize that it's not just all about uh you know the discounts and buying things it's about giving back to the community and giving is by no means a new concept but something that people have been doing since ancient times mm-hmm. um and just like you know charities i think they they make huge uh uh, not income, but but they get big big donations uh, yeah. on Giving News Tuesday, mm-hmm. uh, which shows that there's a lot of people who are taking part in this, and yeah. this is a very good uh, initiative. Yeah, no, no, most certainly. Uh, and if we if we look at the timeline just quickly as well, 500 BCE sees the word philanthropy uh, emerge in a drama uh, called Prometheus Bound. Um, and in this, it, it can be defined as a love for humankind. Uh, if we go to 1601, the British Parliament passes the Charitable Users Act. Um, and uh, just over a decade ago, 2010, sees the Giving Pledge campaign where the world's wealthiest people, such as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, uh, donate a significant portion of their wealth. Um, and last but not least, uh, 2012, the Day of Giving, uh, is initiated by New York's 92nd um, Street uh, Y and the United uh, Nations Foundation and continues to evolve as more organizations join. Um, 
we'll be speaking about how we can observe or celebrate uh, this and what are some of the ways in which we can give in just a short while. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show, Jackie Carpenter uh, from DHT, DaVentio Housing Trust. Um, Jackie is uh, Chief Horizon uh, Gazer at uh, DaVentio Housing Trust. She was there at its beginning 20 years ago uh, when it was set up as a temporary winter night shelter in Derby. This has now grown in into a charitable company with 600 bedrooms of supported housing in a dozen local authorities across the Midlands and in Swindon, um, as well as offering help to get into uh, or, or, or closer to work. It specialises in working alongside people facing multi-layered disadvantage and barriers in life. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Welcome, everybody. Good morning, and thank you for for being with us, Jackie. Um, we're speaking about Giving Tuesday, of course. It is the 29th of November. Um, and the mm. first question that we wanted to ask you was, as a representative of the Housing Trust, you've said that uh, you, you work with people with barriers. So what kind of facilities are available for those people um, who face these barriers in life, and, and particularly uh, speaking about the homeless as well? Well, really, the first thing, if you're homeless, is you need somewhere to live. And that's why the first thing we give people is supported housing. Because it's not just the the roof over your head that somebody who's homeless needs. They also need the support to keep the roof over their head. Because there's some reason that's meant that they've ended up without one. You see where I'm going with this? <laughs> you know, if it was just as simple as a home, then they wouldn't end up homeless. They would be able to be helped much more easily. So when I talk about the barriers, that's things like probably two-thirds of the people um, are experiencing some kind of mental ill health. So that could be, um, you know, fairly low-level um, mental health that could be sorted or treated by going to your GP. But we also... we work alongside people who are in and out of psychiatric wards and have got really quite you know serious health problems um the the other barriers are things like alcohol or drug use and i Mm. think it's probably not widely known but often people reach for um a substance like like a drug it might be a prescription drug or an illegal street drug or they reach for alcohol because it's Mm self-medication So they're trying to sort out something in their head. So it might have been triggered by, I don't know, a bereavement or a trauma. A lot of people have had really bad things happen in their childhood. So because people have got all these kind of multi-layered and complex problems, what they need is somebody alongside them. And that's really the difference that we provide. I mean, what was interesting is in lockdown, yeah. We did the same as everybody. We were absolutely, no, we won't go and see anybody. We will just keep in contact by phone. And, you know, in about a week or two, we quickly realized that was not working for right. people in our housing. You know, they actually needed the contact with the human being. They needed that contact with the person. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the one thing that makes the difference. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know about you, I don't know about your listeners, but... I think the only thing that ever helps me when I'm in a difficult time is another person. It's somebody being interested in me, somebody giving me time and attention, giving me suggestions and advice. It's things like an arm around your shoulder when you're upset, a hand to hold when you're sort of stepping out into something unfamiliar, 
sometimes a boot up the backside, you know, because sometimes we all need that, don't we? A little reality <laughs> check. So that's yeah. the kind of thing, really. Yeah, that's that's great advice. That's very very mm. amazing. Um, just uh, if you can elaborate on that, like your personal experience in the last twenty years or so, you've been serving oh, for yeah. this. Any success story? <laughs> anything you want to share with us? I've got an amazing success story. So um, this is when we, we we had when we were running the night shelter. We don't run that so so much now. We still work with people directly off the streets, but it's mm-hmm. a different kind of way of doing things. So now it's mostly it's an ordinary house on an ordinary street or a flat or something like that, just to give people the best chance. But at this point, we were running a hostel, and we had a couple. So I'll call them. I'll make up names just for anonymity. I call them Samantha and Johnny. And mm-hmm. they were absolutely well known on the streets. The police knew them. The paramedics knew them. They were both drinking, both using drugs, both creating a lot of chaos for the for the ordinary citizens of Derby. And mm-hmm. what happened then was um, they were in our accommodation, and um, they came top on the council list for a flat. And we thought, oh my goodness, can we even do that? Can we even? put them forward for flat because they were so chaotic we thought they mm-hmm. probably wouldn't survive anyway we decided we'd give them a chance and this is something called housing first where you give the person the house and then they then they sort their life out rather than saying oh hey you sort your life out then we'll give you a house yeah <laughs> so we did it that way around mm-hmm. and i said i'll support them and it took a couple of years but you know what they managed it and they stayed in their flat then there's a second bit to this story which is even better so like about five years later i was just coming just walking past the florist shop and i bumped into them coming out and they said oh hello i'm happy <laughs> and you were saying hello and i was like oh nice to see you i haven't seen you for ages and uh and johnny says oh we've just been in to buy a funeral wreath and i went oh really he said, yeah, yeah, the woman in the flat upstairs has died and his husband said Samantha was so good to his wife that he wants her to go in the funeral car with him. Oh, I'm so choked oh. up. I thought, you know, here was people, they were just a nuisance in society and causing problems yeah. and now mm. they've become really good, really good contributors to their community. So that's my amazing success story <laughs> yeah that's truly amazing that's, that's a really a mm. uh, little bit a very inspiring story as well um, mm. it shows that people have always have good in them it's something is the environment yeah. it's, it's, it's the circumstances which make them which force them I, I, I would say into doing you know things which are not as good you're, right. you're absolutely right absolutely That is, that is exactly right and that's why the housing first model works um, yeah definitely <laughs> yeah you're doing amazing work um how can yeah. how can our listeners and you know the how can they support you in this how what can we do as as a community to help you in this work. process well yeah so so the thing is when Samantha and Johnny moved into their flat there was a lot of a lot of space without stuff in it I mean they didn't mm-hmm. have a bed they didn't have carpets they didn't have curtains they didn't have pots and pans so uh, we've got this fund called Sylvester's Fund and actually this was set up by um, a bequest we got so when somebody died they left us their all their money and it was about it, would, it was actually somebody who'd been homeless who we helped who left us his money 
Um, he was a Polish man. So I'm sorry, I'm going to give you another second story now. <laughs> he was a Polish <laughs> no man worries. called Sylvester. Um, mm-hmm. And he got terminal cancer. And we said, you know, do you want people to be back in touch with your family? And he said, no, I don't want anything to do with them. We found him a, Polish, a care home where there was a lot of staff that spoke Polish and they brought him in traditional food and spoke to him in his language. And he was so grateful, he left us £4,000. So we set up Sylvester's Fund. And what we do is we use that fund to help people like Sylvester, like Samantha and Johnny, so they can apply to the fund for anything that's useful. So it might be ID, so they can go on the housing register or get a bank account. It might be they've moved to a flat and they need all sorts of bits and bobs. It might be something... Sometimes we help people with, with... things to improve their life so once we brought somebody a pair of running shoes and entry to a half marathon you know so all sorts of things like that um you know for for people who are going into work it can be a a course or work-related clothing or something so somebody could give us money to Sylvester's fund I can a hundred percent guarantee a hundred percent of every penny you give will go direct to somebody like Sylvester like Samantha and Johnny and none of it goes into our pockets yeah, and hopefully a lot, of, a lot of our listeners will mm. pay attention to this and support you yeah. in this. Well, well, every year we, we do make this the focus of our winter appeal and it is amazing how generous people are, you know, and, and, and that kind of keeps us going through the year, really. You know, so, mm. Yeah, we apply to other trusts and funds for money. We put in some of our own money as well. But, you know, every penny makes a difference then. You, you, you Like me, you could put your head in your pillow and say, I've helped somebody, you know, yeah. with my... With my my contribution, I've made a difference to somebody today. Certainly, certainly. So yes, yeah, so we're on local giving. So um, if you go onto local giving and search the Sylvester's, Sylvester's Fund or um, Deventio, it's very difficult to spell Deventio. It's D E R V E N T I O, but Deventio Housing um, is on our website about Sylvester's Fund. So yeah, it would be fantastic if anybody would even you know just just give us couple of pounds or whatever you feel you can Mm -hmm. amazing awesome uh thank you uh jackie for being with us uh, answering our questions sharing with us how we can help as well and of course those incidents as well um all the best with the work that you're doing and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well yeah thank you it's been a real privilege to be asked so i'm really grateful and uh, i wish you and all your listeners a good day as well likewise (laughs) thanks very much bye-bye bye-bye Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Jackie Carpenter from DHT uh, Davinci Housing Trust. Uh, Jackie is uh, Chief Horizon Gazer at Davinci Housing Trust. Um, she was there as, at its beginning twenty years ago when it was set up as a temporary winter night uh, shelter in Derby, and now, uh, like I mentioned earlier as well, it's grown into a charitable company with six hundred bedrooms of supported housing in a dozen local authorities across Midlands and in Swindon. We're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show Bradley French um, from Donor Fr- uh, Brad heads uh, up the innovation team at uh, mobile fundraising platform uh, Donor uh, prior to working with uh, uh, with this company Brad was directly involved in fundraising for more than a decade including working for two international development charities um, at Donor Brad's role is to liaise with charities and tech developers to ensure that new technology is developed that, uh, that benefits fundraisers and helps charities to raise the funds they need to do in Incredible things. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show, Brad. 
Morning. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for being with us. Um, just getting straight into the questions, really. Uh, it is a, a very important topic, um, giving uh, and, of course, charity. Um, as a head of mobile fundraising platform, um, what kind of new technologies are being developed for the platform and how do you provide the different uh, facilities? Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, Donor is a fundraising platform with over 6,000 charities currently using us. So we try to develop different solutions that charities and um, organizations working for the benefit of others can use in different settings. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we have text giving. So if you're ever watching daytime TV or um, a show like Children Need, you'll see the text. Um, a particular keyword to a short code number to make a donation. So we have mm-hmm. that. It works for smaller donations of a few pounds. And then we have other solutions such as online donation pages that work for much larger donation amounts. So we're constantly developing and innovating new solutions to try and kind of meet the needs and meet different settings um, that charities will want to ask people to donate in um, and the general ethos is the simpler that you make it for people to donate the more likely that they are to do so so that's what we seek to do and uh, what, what's the most uh, successful method and um, so text giving is the um, is the most widely used on our platform um, though that is probably just because that is the solution that we developed first um, the most widely used across fundraising is um, online donation pages, and there's quite a few um, innovations within the online donation page space. Mm-hmm. So obviously, the coronavirus pandemic had lots and lots of negatives, but the one kind of tiny silver lining to a <laughs> massive dark cloud was that everyone now knows how to use a QR code. Yeah. So, QR codes are a lot more prevalent in fundraising now, and that means that you can take a supporter directly to a donation page from wherever they are. So um, if they're at a venue, like a a mosque or kind of at a completely different end of the spectrum, an animal shelter, if someone is is in one of those spaces and scans a QR code, they can go directly to a donation page and donate there and then whilst they're in the moment and whilst they're seeing the benefit that their donation will have. Um, And then there's also been a lot of development in payment technology as well. There's um, Apple Pay, for example, makes it much easier for people to donate because their card details are there ready for them to use. They don't have to have their um, card to hand, which makes it a lot simpler for them to to donate to. Mm, Great. Uh, And uh, incentivized giving, like gaming for good, um, has gained popularity during the pandemic and this cost of living crisis. Uh, so for the benefit of our listeners and ourselves as well, would you kindly explain what this is and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Gaming for Good is essentially fundraising which um, centers around computer games. Mm-hmm. So there are quite large audiences online that will take part in or view online streams of computer games. So you can be watching on your TV someone else playing a 
know, a third-person shooter game or a football-based game or a fantasy game. Um, and there's a big audience for this. People find it very entertaining. Um, some of this is done privately for the benefit of the streamers, but mm-hmm. there is also quite a big audience um, for Gaming for Good, which essentially has a fundraising app attached to um, to someone streaming a particular game. So they could ask for you to make a donation to a particular charity in exchange for you being able to watch them stream that game. Great. And lastly, what can our, our listeners do to support you and help you in this? Yeah, so um, for Donor as a platform, we work with over 6,000 different charities. So ourselves, we're a private company, um, but we work with lots of worthy causes. Mm-hmm. So we recommend kind of having a look at the different charities that are close to you um, around the winter time. People are particularly feeling the squeeze at the moment with the cost of living crisis and uh, rising bills and rising food costs. So there are a lot of really worthy causes running emergency appeals at the moment. Um, we have a broad range of charities on the platform, as you would expect, given that we've got 6,000. Yeah. So there's quite a range. So any individual will be able to find a cause that, that relates to them. And um, there are some Muslim-specific causes, if that is of interest to people. Um, so we have High Wickham Mosque have been very active on our platform. Um, and there's also um, households under great stress to provide support to Muslim households impacted by counter-terrorism work. Um, so there's some really, really worthy causes there that people can, can support. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Bradley, um, for, 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 for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing with our listeners how they can assist uh, and contribute as well. Uh, thank you once again, and uh, we hope uh, for, for all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Bradley French from Donor. Uh, Brad heads up the innovation team at mobile fundraising platform Donor. Uh, prior to working with uh, this company, Brad was directly involved in fundraising for more than a decade, including working for two international development uh, charities. Um, at Donor, Brad's role is to liaise with charities and tech developers to ensure that new technology is developed that uh, benefits fundraisers and helps charities to raise the funds they need to do incredible things um, he was just sharing with us uh, a few ways um, in which our listeners can support as well um, and other uh, incentivized uh, things like uh, gaming for good uh, um, which which gained popularity uh, during the pandemic as well um, the, uh, the I mean the, we mentioned how we can uh, observe and celebrate this isn't it how we can give um, to this as well there are many ways in what uh, in which uh, we can give. It really is a boundless list. There's money, there's time, there's goods, blood, voice, kindness, talent, skills, paying it forward to our earth, helping a neighbor. I mean, there's so many different things. Even if we if we turn to the Holy Quran as well and Islam uh, in general, not just the Holy Quran, but the the narrations of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, it's recorded that he said that even a a, a, a smiling 
um, yeah. uh, to 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 someone is an act of charity, and it just goes to show that even if you don't have anything to give, um, you don't have any uh, anything of monetary value, you can still give your time. Uh, you can still go and and simply just smile at someone, and when they smile back, uh, it might not happen here in London, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but anywhere else in the world, um, if you smile at someone, they they'll 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 smile back, and that is also an act of charity. Um, we're going to be going to our next guest for the show, Daniel Flusky, uh, CIOF for Chartered Institute of Fundraising, uh, Director Policy and Communications. Daniel joined in 2013 as Head of Policy and Research, working with regulators, government, and partners to positively influence the environment of uh, for fundraising. Um, uh, this year, he became Director of Policy and Communications and is responsible for the organization's overall marketing and communications work, as well as the compliance services that we've run for members. Um, his prior, uh, priorities include working with uh, their members to, in, uh, to understand their priorities, to champion the voice of fundraisers and promote the role of charitable fundraising. Uh, he previously has worked at the National Council for Voluntary Organization and Arts Council England as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning to you. How are you? Very good, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, very well, thank you. Awesome. Um, of course, we're speaking um, about Giving Tuesday uh, today. Um, and the first question that we wanted to ask you was as the Director of Policy and Communication, can you kindly explain to our listeners um, your experience working with the government representatives, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so we work with um, civil servants, um, with government departments to talk to them uh, about the, make sure they understand uh, the the role of giving, about how public policy or legislation or the positive messages from government uh, can have an impact in terms of making people aware of charities making people aware of the opportunities to donate and just kind of showing and showcasing really that we as a country are a a generous population um and seeing how we could work with those with those different government departments to to support and celebrate generosity and uh raise the money that charities need to be able to do that vital work which of course we all benefit from and which also government benefits from because in so many cases charities are doing such vital work in communities picking up where government can't reach um so it's all of that space really um trying to trying to uh, get a great positive relationship between the charity sector and government so that together we can uh we can we can raise more money and charities can do more good in their communities yeah, and uh, how how does the Giving Tuesday movement and the, this giving season in general promote fundraising? How how is it affecting it? Yeah, so uh, Giving Tuesday is a worldwide um, global movement. So it's now run in about uh, in about eighty five different countries across the world. Uh, it started off as a very kind of small idea in the in the United States as having a day which followed um, give. Uh, a day that followed Thanksgiving and Black Friday and Cyber mm-hmm. Monday with the idea of saying, you know, after all of those kind of uh, commercial uh, and um, commercial events and buying presents for each other and having Thanksgiving, let's have a day where people can give back. So it started as a, as a day in the States and it's now grown and grown 
uh, to be a movement, as I say, which which is run across the world. Um, and lots of different organisations can get behind that movement in a way that works for them. So it's a very non-prescriptive campaign and movement. Um, if anybody wants to get involved in Giving Tuesday, they can do whatever they like and whatever suits them, whether that's a charity, a business, a school, a university, a sports club, a museum. Anybody can kind of hook on to the idea of Giving Tuesday to showcase what they do to say thank you to their supporters mm -hmm. to inspire them to to maybe give on this day as well and we've seen over previous years um a whole range of you know banks charities different organizations getting behind it and um raising lots of money on the day but not only raising lots of money which is of course hugely important but also being seen to kind of be a an opportunity for charities to, to celebrate and share what they do and raise the awareness of the importance of their work among supporters and the wider public. Great. And uh, lastly, how, how is the cost of living um, affecting uh, giving? Is it affecting it? Yeah, it's really, it's, yeah, it's a really um, interesting question. And um, I think overall, of course, we know that uh, people... People are generous and people, and we have a long tradition, a long history of generosity um, in this country, which is fantastic. But of course, we know that uh, the, the economic situation and people being in uh, more difficult times, maybe in, in having less disposable income or rising, mm -hmm. rising energy costs may have less money to be able to, to give to charity. So we know that uh, that generosity is never able to be taken for granted and that we have to be sensitive to the fact that people may have less money this year than they might have had previously and may be able to give less than they would have normally wanted to be able to do. The information we're seeing at the moment um, is that uh, giving is, is holding up pretty well, levels of giving are holding up pretty well, but cost of living is likely to have a bit of an impact on that. Um, I think in the mm -hmm. main, people aren't going to suddenly stop giving to charities completely, but maybe they won't give as much as they would have done in in other years. But I think we we tend to see that people do still want to support the causes that they that they care about. And you know, I was just listening in to to what um, to, to what was being covered just before uh, the interview started, and mm -hmm. you know, talking about the different things which can count as generosity. Yeah, um, and. I think it's really important to remember that that you know we are talking a lot about fundraising and giving and that fundraising and giving is an expression of people's care and commitment and uh, love and passion for the things which they find important to them but that can also be uh, that can also be provided through other things you know saying thank you to people helping somebody you know, a next door neighbour, um, providing you know f um, food for a food bank, giving mm. food to a um, to a charity shop, uh, giving blood, uh, you know, sharing a story online or talking to your friends and family about something that you've seen or the impact that a charity has had on you and why you care about it. There's a whole range of things that we can do, which even if we're we're not able to give financially or we're not able to give as much as we would hope to. There's a whole range of things that we can do to show that we think that charities are important, that we care about what they do, and that we support them in any way that we that we can. So I think thinking about it in 
generosity in that wide sense and generosity in, in the round is the is the right way because we don't want a day like Giving Tuesday to be exclusive or alienating to people because maybe they aren't able to participate by giving. There's a whole range of things that people can do yes. um, to be involved today. Definitely. It's, um, it's a very amazing and very great point you mentioned and uh, uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, I am very grateful for you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show and I hope wish you all the best for your work uh, ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you. Zero zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. Um, that was Daniel F- uh, Flusky, uh, CI from CIOF Chartered Institute of Fundraising. Uh, he's the director of policy and communications um, uh, ahead of all three of these uh, three things. He joined in twenty thirteen as head of policy and research, working with regulators, government, and partners to positively influence the environment for fundraising. Um, and in twenty two, he became director of policy and communications and resp- is responsible for the organisation. Uh, overall marketing and communications work um, as well as the compliance services uh, that we've run for members um, his priorities include working with uh, with their members um, to understand their priorities to champion the voice of fundraisers and promote the role of charitable fundraising he has previously also worked at the National Council for Voluntary Organisations and Arts Council England as well she, he was uh, sharing his thoughts with us Um, it's just speaking regard. about uh, charities I also like to mention a charity of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Humanity First mm. uh, humanityfirst.org um, just like uh, you know all the other kind of, um, charities uh, Humanity First is also focusing on disaster relief uh, especially um, uh, recently the U- the Ukraine war they've been they've been there to help out uh, community care they, they have orphan care food security There's something called Knowledge for Life. Mm-hmm. So they also provide, uh, you know, books and knowledge and literature. Water for Life. There is so much work being done by Humanity First in Africa, especially uh, where they're, um, you know, making wells, providing clean water, uh, global health. And um, another a great thing started by them is Gift of Sight. So they do uh, free treatments um, for uh, people Uh, f- uh to who 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 have uh, who've lost their vision or who, who needs improvement in their vision so they're doing all sorts of work humanityfirst.org uh, i would also encourage all the listeners to check this out and donate wherever you can whether it's here or anywhere else any any charity Yeah. and be part of this Giving Tuesday today. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, with that, we're going to be going to our next guest for the show, Daryl Hatton. Uh, Daryl leads the innovative uh, collaborative uh, funding company Connect, uh, Connection Point, producer of the award-winning advanced uh, digital fundraising platform Fundraiser uh, with a with a Z, um, the uh, creator community-focused crowdfunding platform Crowdfunder, and the leading-edge healthcare fraud, uh, crowd financing platform Coco. Pay. As a serial entrepreneur who loves the challenge of building companies from scratch, Daryl is frequently called upon for expert co- commentary on entrepreneurship, non-profit fundraising and crowdfunding topics for CBC, CTV, Global News, TVO, Post Media, BBC, Forbes and Bloomberg. Uh, B- Bloomberg sorry. Today he serves as a board member or advisor to multiple startups, uh, scale-ups uh, including Front Funder, uh, Quandary, uh, TreeCycle and SignR and 
serves as a finance risk audit uh, commu- committee chair and director of the PayPal Giving Fund uh, Canada as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. And, Greetings from Vancouver, Canada, uh, and and uh, w- w- welcome from 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 here as well from London. Thank you for uh, being with us, Daryl. Um, we're speaking about Giving Tuesday and giving uh, giving to charity, contributing in whatever way possible. And the first question that we wanted to ask you was: uh, When might people use your uh, crowdfunding platform? How how does this actually work? Um, well, we. Um uh, we have a, a couple of different crowdfunding platforms that are used for different purposes, and I, you went through them in that long introduction that I have. With fundraiser is about personal and, per, uh, and professional charity. Crowdfunder is if you're a creator raising money for your own creative project, and CocoPay is where you need help paying your your medical bills. So for Giving Tuesday, it's really about fundraiser and about helping people raise money for almost any kind of cause, either personal, professional, charity. So you know. With the platform, you can go on, you can create a campaign message and share it out into your broader community and raise funds for that project. It works best for groups like professional charities or organizations who are wanting to raise money from their community using social media, telling the story of the impact of the projects they're working on and getting a crowd to help support them in that endeavor. Great. Um, does digital connectivity promote fundraising or pose challenges? Well, it's a very interesting point of view that our world, the communities in our world, have migrated slightly from being just about where we go to school, where we go to work, the marketplace, where our church or worship place, into um, a broader online community, especially with the amount that people are moving around the world we're staying connected with the communities that we care about using social media. And mm-hmm. so digital connectivity is helping us connect to causes that are important to the members of our community, but also to causes that we have special interest in. Community, charity used to be very local. We work on charities that were around us or that we we're aware of. With the digital connectivity of the internet, we can find causes that matter to us very remotely in the world and that it, it may be that they align with this more closely. It's something that we really care about. It could be a mm-hmm. family member that had a rare disease, or it could be an area that we're from and no longer there, but we still would like to support, you know, poverty in a region, uh, refugees from a region, those kind of things. So the connectivity has really improved fundraising from that point of view, but it has some challenges with it. And the challenges yeah. are that we don't have the personal connection that we used to have in the one-on-one conversations about things that were important. So, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. we strive for a platform is to make sure that our, our, the campaigns that run on our platform and the way we encourage people to participate talks about that sharing, talks about the things that are important to us because that's what other people want to hear and that will inspire them to give. Yeah, and lastly, could you tell us how have you been able to successfully build uh, companies like fundraiser from scratch um, entrepreneurship is either an absolutely crazy journey or is the logical <laughs> thing for people who um, uh, just love to have an adventure I mean, building a company from scratch is challenging in that you not only have to envision the problem you're trying to solve 
but there's so many different skills that you want to, to, you have to bring to play. You have to bring leadership and fundraising and problem solving and customer care and marketing, all these different things together. I've been fortunate that I've been able to do some of these things myself, but more importantly, find people that were very good at it. And so I think the, the key to a successful build, company building like this mm -hmm. is to surround yourself with people who are really good at things like this, to try not to do it all. You know, if you're starting a business, find a co-founder because starting a business is a very lonely endeavor. So if you have one or two or even three co-founders alongside you, it makes the journey so much easier for you and it lets you accomplish things. You know, with Fundraiser, we've started with just a very small company based in Vancouver and now we've helped raise almost a quarter of a billion dollars for over 200,000 projects in over 200 100 countries around the world. That's so amazing. it can start with a small dream and then convert into something very big once you get the right people involved. Definitely. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daryl, for your time. Uh, I assume you're in, in Canada right now. It must be pretty late because a couple hours behind us. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's about to be midnight. <laughs> so, uh, but it's it's it says a lot about the global nature of Giving Tuesday now. This is, you know, started as a North American phenomenon <clears throat> and has spread around the world because I think we all want to give to our communities. And by having a day that's focused on giving, and as one of your previous callers was talking about, there's many ways to give. It's not just financial. So if we can talk about giving and supporting causes, talking about them, sharing their message, sometimes providing financial incentives, um, we can make a world a much better place. Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, Daryl, thank you for that and for being with us and answering our questions as well. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Daryl Hatton, uh, who leads the innovative collaborative funding company Connection Point, producer of the award-winning advanced uh, digital fundraising platform Fundraiser, the creator community-focused crowdfunding platform Crowdfunder, and the leading-edge healthcare crowdfinancing platform Coco Pay as well. Um, we're going to be speaking a about this just a little bit after the 8 o'clock news as well, um, and uh, then moving on to our next topic. So don't go anywhere. Here's the 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station, uh, where we are discussing, uh, and we were speaking about uh, this before the news as well. If you are just tuning in, about giving a Tuesday. Um, in a short while, we'll be speaking um, about our other two topics as well in regards to the uh, veganism right at the end of the show and the cold crisis in our quarters in just a short while as well. Um, just a little bit more on this before we finish. Um, uh, the reason and the significance behind why we should partake in this um, is that uh, the in the last quarter uh, of the year, um, it peaked in in effective fundraising um, and the, uh, a large percentage of charitable organizations gifts are received uh, and thence especially between Thanksgiving and December the 31st the end of the year and perhaps it is uh, it's an opportunity for people to get themselves off of Santa's naughty list before Christmas um, but what's the incentive well 
Most participants say it's because they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, giving can be an enjoyable experience and can contribute to one's sense of self-worth. Doing good for others is ultimately the uh, uh, doing good for yourself as well. And as mentioned before, it proves that the past... Um, the past the pre-winter splurge, people can continue to crack out their cards to give back. And again, it allows non-profits to take advantage and make the most of their fundraising as well. Um, if we just look at a few statistics before moving on, in just 24 hours, Giving Tuesday 2021 broke the previous revenue record. Despite the pandemic, donors donated around $3 billion. 80 countries and hundreds of cities participate in this day. Thousands of organizations uh, around the world are encouraging generosity in, in their communities as well. And in 2021, 10%, uh, so 35 million people of the U.S. population participate participated in some way on Giving Tuesday. 30% of participants donated goods, 50% uh, gave money, and 28% of volunteers. So like we said earlier, it's not about um, just financially contributing, but there's other methods and other ways in which we can give as well. 84% of those uh, aware of Giving Tuesday report that the movement inspired them to give more. 82% of young donors uh, who are aware of Giving Tuesday choose to support their favorite nonprofits that day. Um, and people aged between uh, 18 and 34 are most likely to participate, particularly due to its high reach across social media uh, platforms with billions of impressions per year. Um, I mean, we can speak about this um, at length, um, but just one um, um, thing that I'd like to mention um, before uh, moving on to the next topic is a verse of the Holy Quran in which Allah the Almighty uh, states this is in uh, chapter 2 verse uh, 275 it mentions that those who spend their wealth by night and day secretly and openly have their reward with their Lord um, on them shall have no fear nor shall they grieve and from this we can learn that there is no right or wrong time oh well there's no wrong time to to give to charity we can always give whether it's uh, night whether it's day um and um and and we can give secretly and openly as well and the the reasons for this is secretly the benefits for this is that uh, there's no uh, there's no boasting about it there's no uh, ostentation you're not doing it to 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 show to others that oh I'm I'm giving to charity and um and um, when it comes to doing it openly, the benefits of this can be that when you give openly, then um, others can uh, learn from this as well. And they can also uh, contribute uh, as well. Like we mentioned earlier, that because of the, the billions of impressions that it had last year, um, uh, a lot of people give uh, give more as well, uh, especially uh, um, due to the social media coverage as well. We're going to be going to our last guest for this segment. Uh, before moving on, we have with us on the line Joe Morley from 
platform City to See. City to See is an environmental non non for profit campaigning uh, to stop plastic pollution at source. Their award winning campaigns are tackling the single use plastic items most found on our beaches and in our rivers and oceans by providing practical solutions um, uh, f- f- solutions focused in initiatives and champion uh, championing reuse over single use by working with communities, businesses, and retailers. They're inspiring and empowering everyone to tackle plastic pollution and they believe collective action is key to lasting behavior change and encourage uh, everyone to rethink refuse reduce and reuse across all of their companies um uh, joe assalamualaikum peace be upon you good morning and welcome to the breakfast show good morning thanks so much for having me you're welcome and thank you for for being with us today um could you explain uh, to our listeners a little bit about um uh, some of the insights on uh, on plastic pollution please yeah, of course. And I mean, I'm sure your listeners will have seen on programs like Blue Planet and likely for themselves when they're out and about. Plastic pollution is a massive and unfortunately still a growing problem. Just to give you an idea of the scale, uh, plastic waste has now been found across the entire planet, from our deepest oceans to Arctic snow uh, to the Alps. Um, And it's also been found in the air that we breathe, the food that we eat and the water that we drink. So it's posing not just um, a problem and a risk for, for, um, for wildlife and for the environment, but also for human health as well. Um, and the, the, big, the big issue and the issue that we focus on is, is single-use plastic. So mm-hmm. we use around 300 million tons of plastic every year, wow. and around half of that is single-use. So these are the things that we just use once on the go. Um, we're so used to convenience, um, and this is just creating a humongous problem. Um, and in the UK and around the world, despite what most of us believe, actually only about 10% of the packaging and the plastic that we've created is getting recycled. And this is just creating a massive waste problem. Um, so, so the plastic and the, the waste that we create is ending up in landfill, it's getting incinerated, or it's ending up in our natural environment. And this is what causes the, the pollution. Um, and ocean pollution is what most people think of when, when they think of plastic pollution. Um, and actually around 8 to 12 million tonnes of plastic uh, leak into our oceans every year. Wow. Thank you. Could you could you tell us some uh, about about some of your campaigns which are going on uh, preventing plastic pollution? Yeah, of course. So our campaigns, we um, as you said, really focus in on the most polluting single-use plastic items. So these are the ones that are washing up on our beaches. They're polluting our rivers, and these <coughs> make up around half of, of marine pollution. So these are things like plastic bottles, uh, food containers, coffee cups. And also uh, things that people don't even realize contain plastics um, and are, are getting flushed down our toilets. So these are things like menstrual products and wet wipes, mm-hmm. contact lenses, and these end up causing blockages that lead to sewage overflows, um, which impact our oceans in other ways. So Refill is our biggest campaign. It's a, a global campaign that's designed to help people uh, find places so that they can personally reduce waste. Um, we have a, a completely free location-based app, and that's, that connects people to free drinking water, to zero-waste shops, um, and other places that you can access packaging, free shopping. Um, and just to give you an idea of the impact of that, in the UK we use a whopping 
15 billion plastic bottles every year and wow. around half of those are just from drinking water mm -hmm. so the scale of the you know the, the pollution that is created from those plastic bottles is massive so we really focus in on providing alternatives providing solutions for people that don't cost the earth they don't cost money um, mm -hmm. but they can really help people to, to live with less waste Mm -hmm. um, um, Refill is powered by local communities, so we work with um, communities, with volunteers and with councils who are creating um, kind of change where they live and providing people within their communities with alternative ways uh, to reduce waste by scaling access to reuse systems and trying to get us off our addiction to single-use plastic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and just uh, lastly there, uh, Joe, how else can our listeners help you turn the tide? So that's a really great question. And there are so many things that we can do as individuals. I always recommend starting with a plastic audit. So having a look at the plastic that you use at home uh, across a week and just seeing what else you could do to, to reduce your personal usage. Um, you can download the Refill app, which is our completely free app that will help you find, uh, find those places and find other ways to reduce plastic. Um, you can use your voice, you know, let brands and let governments know that you want to see change. And of course, as you've alluded to today, it is Giving Tuesday, um, so you can donate um, and help our campaigns to prevent plastic pollution. You can visit our website at city to sea and access all of our completely free tips for living with less plastic. And you can sign up to our, our newsletter as well, Plastic Free Journal, which will update you on all of our campaigns um, and ways that you can take action, whether it's by giving money or by giving your time, um, by volunteering, um, which, of course, is what, what Giving Tuesday is all about. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, thank you, uh, Joe, for, 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 for your answers, for being with us. Um, and we hope you have a wonderful full day ahead as well. All the best with the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 0208 is the number for you to call. That was Joe Morley from City to Sea. Uh, and like we mentioned earlier, this is an environmental non-for-profit campaigning to stop plastic pollution at source. Their award-winning campaigns are tackling the single-use plastic items most found on our beaches and in our rivers and oceans by providing practical, solutions-focused initiatives and championing reuse over single use. Uh, by working with communities, businesses and retailers, they're inspiring and empowering everyone to tackle plastic pollution. Um, they believe collective action is key to lasting behaviour change and encourage everyone to rethink, refuse, reduce and reuse across all of their campaigns. Um, and she was sharing her thoughts with us in this regard. We're going to be going to our next guest for the uh, sorry, our next segment for the show. Um, cold crisis in our quarters, human health and homeostasis. Well, the, the reason why we're speaking about this is that the cost of living crisis has created difficulties for the mass, vast majority or, uh, to heat their homes. But surely it's not the Ice Age, particularly in the UK. So no chance of frostbite? Well, yes. But the the cold reality is that even purportedly uh, mild temperatures pose potentially profound physiological problems. The cold chamber. Well, James Gallagher 
health presenter on BBC's Radio 4, was invited to participate in an experiment at the University of South Wales by Professor Damien Bailey, um, who will be speaking with as well. Um, and he aimed to investigate the impact of cold homes on our bodies and why such a seemingly mild temperatures can uh, become deadly as well. It, it was... Uh, um, uh, it was set in a controlled lab in an airtight environmental <coughs> chamber with equipment to monitor temperature, uh, heart rate and blood pressure, etc. And the method was to steadily reduce air temperature to 10 degrees Celsius uh, from a starting point of 21 degrees for half an hour and observe its effect on the body. Um, and the goal was to keep the core temperature, that is the temperature of vital organs in the body, uh, such as the heart and liver, at 37 degrees. Um, so what were the findings, uh, Osman? What, um, uh, what, uh, what happened in the cold chamber? Yeah, so uh, I watched this very interesting experiment that it So uh, this, this reporter, he sat in a, in a room uh, with the control temperature and they slowly started decreasing the temperature and they noted down everything that was happening with his body. And, uh, well, towards the end of the experiment, they found that the drop in blood flow, um, so too, uh, dropped in oxygen and glucose to the brain. And that's the time taken with the cogn- cognition puzzle. So he, he was doing a puzzle, basically, mm-hmm. throughout the experiment. And when when his um, when it got colder, his uh, blood flow was reduced to the brain. So his brain functioning uh, was also affected. And uh, this caused, uh, what this did is that the, the the puzzle he was doing, it took him a lot longer to do it yeah. than when it was warmer. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, they also mentioned that this is also affecting um, you know, not just adults at home, also the children at school. Uh, because uh, uh, probably uh, we, we discussed this a few weeks ago as well, that people, um, the government and the schools are uh, considering to uh, cut down a day and have a four day week mm-hmm. uh, cut down on the on the on the gas on the heating but this will have a very very damaging effect on the children's brains uh, like shown in this experiment and the body is fighting to maintain its core temperature by increasing blood pressure and heart rate uh, so at the end they found that at the end what the body's aim was was to protect your vital organs yeah you know your your um, core temperature and uh, that was successful that the body did manage to keep uh, everything at 37 degrees your heart your lungs but at the cost of your brain and your other um, parts of your body mm-hmm. and it confirmed that 18 degrees celsius is the tipping point when the body starts striving to preserve its core temperature mm-hmm. and this takes a toll on 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 the rest of the body no uh, very interesting uh, findings from that. And we'll be speaking about uh, ha- uh, how, whether or not the cold can co- cause one to actually catch a cold and how we can cope with the cold um, and a few other things uh, in this regard as well. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line our first guest for this segment, Professor Damien Bailey uh, from the University of South Wales. Uh, Damien M. Bailey embarked on a PhD uh, in clinical f- physiology uh, while working, on a, uh, working as a research physiologist at the British Olympic uh, Medical Centre 
Center in collaboration with Oxford University. Following training at the Universities of, uh, of California, San Diego and Colorado Health Sciences Center in the U.S., he returned to the University of South Wales, where he is currently Professor of Physiology and Biochemistry and a Royal Society uh, Wolfson Research Fellow leading the Neurovascular Research Laboratory. Um, can you, uh, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning all and uh, thanks for the invitation. appreciate it. You're welcome and thank you for, for, for joining us, for being with us today. Uh, we're speaking about a very interesting topic, uh, the cold crisis in our own quarters. Um, and the first question that we wanted to ask you in this regard was if you could kindly explain to our listeners what aspects of research you cover as, uh, as Professor of uh, Physiology and Biochemistry, please. Yeah, so uh, I'm effectively interested in the brain and um, uh, the brain, how how the brain controls blood flow to itself because it needs oxygen and it needs glucose. Um, And in order to understand that, um, we span the spectrum, if you like, of very extreme experiments where we subject people to extremes of heat and cold and um, a lack of oxygen or high pressures um, and space as well as the most extreme environment. Um, But ultimately, those models provide us insight into what causes disease. So we're specifically interested in uh, Alzheimer's uh, neurodegeneration. Why does the brain typically go wrong with aging and what can we do uh, in order to recover function? So, of course, the cold fits quite nicely into into that quite complicated puzzle. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that cold is a killer and more deadly than the heat. Uh, in light of the NHS warm home uh, prescription pilot that pays to heat the homes of low-income patients at risk, so which groups of people are most at risk and what's the reason? Well, I mean, uh, the people really that are most at risk are those with chronic medical conditions. So. These are patients where you know, they're suffering, be it with heart failure um, or lung failure. So conditions such as emphysemia, chronic bronchitis, bronchitis, um, uh, and the old vulnerable patients as well. And of course, what's, what's missing from much of this is um, patients that are suffering from uh, accelerated cognitive decline or dementia, as an example. So these are patients that are particularly vulnerable uh, and often the patients that are forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And for the benefit of our listeners, could you suggest ways to protect oneself from the harm, harmful effects uh, you have found in your cold chamber experiment? Yeah, so, I mean, the most important thing, and it's very difficult for the elderly patients that might have uh, a variety of chronic conditions where they can't move around much, but it really is important to keep moving if you can. I mean, this is the sort of thing that will keep you warm. So mm-hmm. our muscles generate heat, about 80% of what we generate uh, in terms of energy turnover in muscles, that's lost as heat to the periphery. So there are internal radiators, if you like. So trying not to sit down for more than an hour, um, it's important to get up and try to walk around. Um, cover yourself, of course, um, with uh, clothes that provide a good um, layer of uh, insulation. Um, so wool is a great material, but, but have a few layers of thin clothing rather than just one thick layer, um, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. Other tips include uh, make sure you check the temperature in your living room and your bedroom. Um, 
you know, with a thermometer, so you've got an idea what the temperature is, and you know, ho- hopefully people are able to keep the temperature above 18 degrees centigrade. Um, I think, as your previous guest mentioned, that's the physiological tipping point, if you like, where the body is working jolly hard to defend mm-hmm. the core temperature. Um, but of course, we know uh, in the cost of living crisis, that's not always possible for everyone. You can tuck your curtains behind radiators. Um, make sure you've got enough of your prescription medicines. Plenty of hot drinks. Um, obviously, check the weather forecast so you've got an idea of what the temperatures are doing. Uh, here in Wales today, it's about six degrees centigrade, so it's a particularly cold day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to get colder, of course. Um, and uh, another tip, really, is that as we showed with that experiment with James Gallagher um, on BBC Radio Four we altered the fuel that we burn uh, in terms of a metabolic fuel and there's a shift to carbohydrate oxidation so again perhaps shifting a diet so it's a little bit higher in carbohydrates so that there's plenty of fuel in our bodies that we can burn so lots of things there really I mean uh, uh, but but moving around really is quite important and Mm -hmm. uh, as I said it's terribly difficult for the older patients that aren't ambulatory because they'll be spending you know, hours on end, sitting down in a chair, uh, days, weeks, months on end, uh, unfortunately exposed to suboptimal temperatures. Um, and these suboptimal temperatures are a big problem. I mean, globally, um, there's about just over 5 million deaths per year associated with non-optimal temperatures. And just over 8.5% of those, so that's about 450,000 deaths, mm-hmm. are caused by cold. And that's a lot more than the deaths that are caused as a result of hot temperatures. Yeah. Less mm-hmm. than 1% of all of those deaths are caused by hot temperatures. So, you know, that kind of puts into perspective um, the extent of the problem. It's not just constrained to us here in the UK. Of course, it's a global phenomenon. The sad thing about this, or the frustrating thing about this, is that these are all preventable deaths. Yeah. And what would you suggest for tonight? A lot of people, they turn off the heating to, you know, because they think they're sleeping, so they won't need the heating on all night. Does that affect your body as well, or whilst you're sleeping, you're in your in your blanket? That's right. I mean, we, we can maintain uh, microclimates around us. I mean, for example, if you sleep in a warm bed and you 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 know you, if you can't afford the heating and you've got plenty of duvets so that you've created this warm microclimate. I mean, that's certainly better than nothing. But, you know, the argument at the moment is is that uh, heating should be turned down and, and just le- left on a continuous uh, run. But again, you know, as I explained mm-hmm. to individuals, this is not always possible financially. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Not everyone can afford this, of course. Um, and um, many of the houses are operating in the UK, we know, at suboptimal temperatures. Mm, okay. Um, awesome. Thank you for, 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 for sharing your insight uh, uh, with us, Professor Bailey, and, and answering our questions. I mean, it, it is uh, crucial for us to take action. And like you mentioned, all of these deaths are such a high figure. Um, and these are, all, these are all preventable, isn't it? If, uh, if um, um, the, let's say, if the government was to aid a little bit more um, or, 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 or if, if, if the households were able to afford uh, heating, then, of course, we wouldn't see so many of these um, of these deaths isn't it and like we mentioned earlier as well cold really is a killer um, and it's more, more deadly than than the heat as well but uh, but yeah thank you for for being with us sharing your insight in this regard and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well
My pleasure and best wishes to all. Take Likewise. care. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Professor Damien uh, Bailey from the University of South Wales. Uh, he embarked on a PhD in clinical uh, physiology while working on a research uh, as a research physiologist at the British Olympic uh, Medical Centre in collaboration with Oxford University. Following training at the universities of uh, California, uh, San Diego, and Colorado Health Science Sciences Centre in the US, he returned to the University of South Wales, where he is currently professor of physiology and biochemistry and a Royal Society Wolfson Research Fellow leading the Neurovascular Research Laboratory. Um, he is chair of the uh, Life Sciences uh, Working Group and member of the Human Space Flight and Exploration Science Advisory Committee to the European Space Agency and is a member of the Space Exploration Advisory uh, Committee to the UK Space Agency as well. Uh, he's affiliated w- uh, to the companies uh, Float uh, TBL Inc., uh, BrainX Inc., um, and uh, OrgX uh, Inc. as well, focused on the technological development of novel novel biomarkers uh, of brain injury in humans. Um, and with that, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show, uh, Dr. Claire Eglin from the University of Portsmouth. Dr. Claire is a Principal Lecturer in Human and Applied Physiology from the Extreme Environments Laboratory in the School of Sport, uh, Health and Exercise Science at the University of Portsmouth. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show. Hi, good morning. Good morning, and thank you for for being with us. Um, oh, thank you. We're speaking uh, about a very uh, important topic uh, over here: the cold cr- crisis that we're seeing in our own quarters. Um, specifically speaking about human health, and the first question that we wanted to ask you was: Why are some uh, more sensitive to the cold than than others? Could it be? indicative of uh, an underlying medical condition uh, like uh, like Raynaud's for instance? Well um, we're all very different individuals and um, the main thing that determines how we uh, perceive cold or how we react in the cold is actually our body size. So small people will cool quicker than larger people. Um, individuals who are very thin um, will lose heat very quickly and also feel cold. Uh, people who have got a large muscle mass um, will feel warmer than people with less muscle mass. So a lot of the differences um, that we see between people are really just due to their body size. Um, In some cases it can be due to a medical um, condition such as Raynaud's where the blood vessels in the hands or in the feet are particularly sensitive to cold. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, it's just body sizes, really. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, does our uh, our upbringing, the way we were brought up, uh, uh, have a have a role to play in this as well? I mean, uh, for for some parents, they they proper swaddle their their children and put blankets upon blankets upon them, and maybe other parents um, leave them with maybe a, a few a few less layers. Um, does that make them more immune to 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 the cold or anything, or is it just mainly just like you're saying? just the uh, muscle mass and, uh, and, and our physiques? Well, that's a really interesting question, actually, because um, it's something that we don't really know. That if you, We know that changes occur that if you're repeatedly exposed to cold. Mm-hmm. But trying to work out whether that's a good adaptation, because it tends to mean that you protect your core, which is very important, but it could mean that your hands and your feet become colder because you reduce the blood flow to your hands and feet. Mm 
which stops you losing heat, which is good to protect your core. But then it means that your hands and feet are very cold, which could alter their function. Um, and looking back at sort of seeing how people um, respond to um, cold if they've been exposed to cold um, sort of throughout their life, we do see that um, if we look at indigenous populations sort of um, in the Arctic, we see that they do seem to respond um, better in the cold than perhaps somebody who was brought up in a warm environment um, throughout their life. So mm-hmm. it, it's quite difficult because there's lots of other things going on because obviously they'll have a different diet yeah. um, and that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, you also mentioned that uh, women tend to feel colder than men. Uh, wh- what's the reason for this uh, that gender well, difference? Well, there are several uh, several reasons, really. Um, generally, women are smaller than men, and so therefore uh, they will lose heat more quickly. Mm. Um, they also um, have a um, sort of more sensitive or more sensitive to cold in that their blood vessels in their hands and in their feet will constrict, will narrow down to reduce the blood flow more quickly. And that is good because it protects the core and prevents heat loss, but it does mean that the hands and feet will then feel colder Mm -hmm. and therefore we perceive um, the environment um, colder. And does that have any effect on pregnancy? Um, I... I am not aware of any studies that have looked at um, sort of heat balance in um, pregnant women and uh, whether that changes. Mm-hmm. But I suspect it probably would because uh, one of the reasons why women um, respond uh, greater than men is because of um, um, the levels of estrogen. So that's obviously changing during preg- pregnancy. So I'd expect to see some differences. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, can you give some advice to our listeners um, on uh, on the symptoms uh, of this non-freezing cold injury, uh, this experiment in the cold chamber, and how can they handle it? Well, for um, most people, um, if, if you're exposed to cold, you'll, um, your hands will become numb um, if you're in there for a, a long period of time. Um, when you come out, what you want to do is rewarm them slowly. A non-freezing cold injury is a sort of like a, a large umbrella of different um, conditions, the most common being chillblains, which is seen mm-hmm. in young children and older people, and that's like a, a reaction to the cold. It will be sort of like small red um, uh, marks on the skin, which become itchy. And the main thing is to... Um, rewarm slowly and try and prevent them happening in the first place by wrapping up well, making sure that you're wearing gloves, um, nice warm socks, um, and uh, generally keeping moving rather than keeping still when you're in the cold. Mm. I mean, uh, very essential tips, uh, especially uh, given that the rise of uh, the, the rising cost of living as well. Uh, thank you, um, Dr. Eglin, for 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 being with us, for answering our questions, uh, and sharing your insight into this uh, very important topic, uh, especially in uh, in the, the big, due to the situation that we're seeing currently as well. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye.
0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Claire Eglin from uh, the University of Portsmouth. Um, Dr. Eglin is a principal lecturer in human and applied physiology uh, from the Extreme Environmental Laboratory in the School of Sport, Health and Exercise Science at the University of Portsmouth. And she is sharing her thoughts with us uh, in this regard. Um, and uh, just quickly before we move on to the next topic as well, um, um, can the cold cause one to actually catch a cold? Well, the cold in itself doesn't cause a cold, but can be a factor for an infection such as the flu with the pneumonia, uh, which is, of course, inflammation in the lungs uh, culminating during the cold season. Um, uh, it was clarified to the BBC uh, by Professor Iwasaki that at these cooler temperatures, your immune response becomes less active and this can allow virus to grow better within your nose. Additionally, we tend to meet indoors uh, during the winters, uh, during the winter uh, season. And as uh, our good friend uh, COVID has taught us, the lack of ventilation means viruses linger in the air for longer. Moreover, could air also, uh, cold air also tends to be dry, which means less virus uh, trapping moisture, allowing viruses to travel further distances as well. Um, we've mentioned with uh, this with our, our listeners as well, but uh, Usman, if you can just go through maybe two or three um, ways in which we can cope with the cold, especially mm-hmm. as uh, uh, not all of us can afford uh, heating uh, during this difficult time as well. Um, yeah, these are yeah. pretty basic. Everyone knows the first full layup. Um, if you if instead of turning up the heating every time, put an extra layer of uh, maybe another hoodie, another jumper, or sit around with your jacket. Um, uh, bring out the bottles, hot water bottles. That is. Uh, tuck it in your bed a couple of minutes before you crawl in so just warming up your bed before you get in it will it will give you a more comfortable you know yeah. entry uh, making me uh, tired uh, just thinking about how cozy that would be <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and then close the gaps and draw the curtains uh, as Professor Bailey also mentioned that sometimes the curtains are they're, they're hanging in front of the heater yeah so all that heat is going to the window and it's mm. keeping that window area warm yeah so uh, tuck your curtains behind the heater uh, so the heat all the heat comes into the room instead of going towards the windows um, uh, drink a lot of hot tea you know hot chocolate warm drinks uh, none of that coke and uh, all the other stuff maybe yeah. this winter um, and the most important thing, keep active. Uh, don't sit around for more than an hour. Uh, Professor Bailey mentioned everything. I'm just repeating it. So don't sit around too long, especially the elderly. Um, for them, this, this is more dangerous. They're more um, affected by it. So, uh, yeah, keep keep active and um, uh, also check what you are eligible for uh, from, from the government. Uh, whatever help you can get this winter, it's it's needed. Hmm. Most certainly, most certainly. And this brings us to our last segment for the day, World Vegan Month, November. Uh, veganism has gained a lot of popularity this century uh, and especially within the last few decades. But what are the various reasons uh, to be vegan? How do people manage and does it mean a different diet? Let us know what you think in regards to these questions that we're asking. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. Um, we'll quickly
quickly go through a few things uh, before speaking to our esteemed guests as well. Uh, what is a vegan, first of all? Uh, well, Donald, Donald uh, Watson, um, who coined the term veganism back in 1944, he defined it as a philosophy and way of living which seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practicable, uh, practicable um, all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing or any other purpose and by extension promotes the development and use of animal free alternatives for the benefits of animals, humans and the environment. In dietary terms it denotes the practice of dispensing uh, with all products derived wholly or partly from animals. So generally a diet excluding uh, meat um, as labelled as uh, as vegetarian while a diet excluding all animal products is labelled as vegan. However, this is not limited to diet um, as some vegans also seek vegan makeup, uh, clothing etc as well. So you need to look out for uh, products labelled VG not just V. Um, so, uh, and another thing we, sh- we should mention as well is that all vegan food is halal, uh, except alcohol, of course. But that doesn't mean that all halal food is uh, is vegan. <laughs> yeah. uh, just just to clarify that as well. Um, so uh, we'll we'll go through we'll, and speak about what uh, people do, uh, uh, do, why people go vegan, um, and what are some of the reasons behind this. But before doing so, um, Usman, how did the concept uh, uh, actually originate? Yeah, so the evidence of people choosing to avoid animal products can be tracked back over 2,000 years ago, as early as 500 BC. So a Greek philosopher and a a mathematician, Pythagoras, promoted benevolence among all species and followed what could be described as a vegetarian diet. Uh, Around the same time, Siddhartha Gautama, better known as the Buddha, was discussing vegetarian diets with his followers. And fast forward to 1806, um, and the earliest concepts of veganism are just starting to take shape with Dr. William Lamb and Percy Bysshe Shelley, amongst the first Europeans to pub, uh, publicly object to eggs and dairy on ethical grounds. Uh, in November 1944, that's when Donald Watson called a meeting with five other non-dairy vegetarians, including Elsie uh, Shrigley, to discuss non-dairy vegetarian diet and lifestyles uh, through many held similar views at the time uh, these six pioneers were the first to actively found a found a new movement despite opposition the group felt a new wo- word was required to describe them um, something more concise than non-dairy vegetarians uh, rejected words included dairy ban vitan and benevol they settled on vegan, a word that Donald Watson later described as containing the first three and last two letters of vegetarian in words of Donald Watson. It marked the beginning uh, the beginning and of vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we're going to be going to our first guest for the show, Hugo Turner. Um, uh, the Turner twins uh, are British adventurers who have undergone a host of world first um, uh, expeditions to help people learn about our world. Together they have uh, rowed the Atlantic Ocean, climbed Mount Elbrus, uh, attempted to trek the Greenland ice cap and have reached several poles of uh, inaccessibility including the Australian, North and South American uh, and Iberian poles. 
Charles. Um, Assalamualaikum. Good morning and welcome uh, to the breakfast show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're welcome and thank you for for being with us. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, um, can you kindly explain um, uh, or, and give an, an overview of this particular adventure that you went on, um, where, where it was a twelve week uh, fitness study where um, when you went vegan and the other uh, remained uh, an omnivore. Oh, I, I'm not sure which one uh, yeah. did which, but yeah, if you could kindly explain that, please. Yeah. So. Um we're we're adventurers and we go on uh, probably one or two major expeditions a year which mm-hmm. leaves quite a bit of time in between those expeditions to train and build up and essentially repair our bodies from the last expedition and build mm-hmm. up to the next one so we're using this as an opportunity to um, pull in some science and medical um, studies to essentially understand our bodies and how they react and obviously as we're twins um, it means that there should, you know, we shouldn't really be getting any biased results, albeit mm-hmm. there are very slight differences between the two of us. Yeah. Um, I went vegan um, for okay. three months, completely and totally um, vegan, so I couldn't even eat crisps that contain milk powder or flavouring. Mm-hmm. Um, chocolate was a no, so that was a real struggle for me. But <laughs> really what we, what we were doing was just looking at how, if we both had an identical fitness and gym uh, regime, and we did it in the new year. Um, I went completely vegan. Ross, uh, my twin, he ate a normal diet, a balanced diet of meat, um, dairy, vegetables. So he didn't really change anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were obviously doing the, the, the same gym program. And we, we were just highlighting the differences, the pros and cons, or any, any differences really between um, you know, the vegan diet and a normal diet. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, um, b- before we speak about how it turned out and what the results were, what were your expect uh, expectations before go- going into this? Well, I I, I went vegan, um, and my expectations were um, sceptical whether I would actually feel good, whether um, I would notice any improvements whether mm-hmm. i would notice any kind of negative side effects so i was i didn't have a very clear idea but i my general thought was it's probably going to be probably annoying trying to shop vegan <laughs> a vegan diet but yeah. Um, yeah it was mixed okay and 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 what was the result then at the end so the results after three months of, of training um so our my body weight dropped slightly whereas ross has increased Mm-hmm. Um, my body fat percentage went uh, well, dropped two percent, whereas Ross's increased two percent. Oh, okay. Um, and then from the physiological tests we were doing, there wasn't a huge difference or an uplift in performance of either diet, and we both stayed pretty much the same. So there's obviously a lot of um, documentaries out there at the moment that are looking at you know vegan versus meat diet and yeah. the pros and cons. So. Um, yeah, there wasn't a huge noticeable, wow, okay, a vegan diet's better or a meat diet's better. It was it was very much the same from a physiological perspective. So we were testing, we did um, physiological tests, so press-ups, pull-ups, bench mm-hmm. press, deadlift. We did tests before and after the um, experiment. And, yeah, there wasn't a huge difference between either. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we were looking at the gut health and gut, gut flora um, and the amount of bacteria that we have in our guts. Um, you know, I my um, cholesterol uh, dropped massively, which is a, a real positive because uh, Ross mm-hmm. and I 
as twins, we both have very high cholesterol. But, uh-huh. you know, even in the three months, which is a reasonably short period of time to look at the gut health and the changes there are, um, it did drop, um, you know, my diversity as well of bacteria dropped slightly for me, whereas it stayed the same for Ross, who was on a, an omnivore diet. I think purely because he was eating uh, a large range of of foods. But then to argue that point is that yeah, I I've been I went vegan for three months, and so I was very much learning how to eat and what to eat and things like that. So you know, had I have pushed on past the three months, I think I probably would have um, found more foods mm-hmm. and got a bit more creative in terms of how I how I ate. And would you go back to it, or would you would think I you go back? To it? Yeah, so from the scientific perspective, there was there was pros and cons, I think, from a gut health perspective, um, and I think you've got a guest coming on later that can chat more about that. Um, from a well-being and how I felt mentally and physically, I felt actually much better on a vegan diet. And I think that's mainly because I wasn't snacking uh, during the day on mm-hmm. high sugar foods, whereas you've got biscuits and cake, they will contain dairy products. And yeah. inherently, inherently they have <coughs> high sugar. So I was getting the, on the normal diet before I went vegan, I was getting the high sugar spikes and the lows. So, you know, you, we all get to that three o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon, where we have something to eat, uh, a coffee and a biscuit. Yeah. And suddenly we get that crash, you know, we crash. But I was having to eat whole foods, nuts, fruits. And so I wasn't getting those sugar highs and lows. So I felt a lot more satiated during the day, which was, which was a huge um, positive from a vegan perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I couldn't eat chocolate, and I do like chocolate now and again. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think from what we've done is, 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 is eat the rainbow. Eat as much you know, variety of food as, as, as you want to. Right. Yeah, I think it's, it was more of the, the, the sugar impact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, compared to the meat maybe uh, still uh, it has to be more controlled to you know find out the exact uh, advantages and benefits and disadvantages yeah yeah I, I think it's something that we'll we'll go go back to the table with again and, and do a really thorough test over it because obviously this is just our this is our own experiment mm-hmm. and yes we were working with uh, King's College London's Department of Twin Research and the Zoe app um that's looking at the health of the gut bacteria but yeah what I'd like to do is go really go back to the very essence of everything and live an identical three month period eat exactly the same but then really isolate the differences um, mm. of a vegan meat diet and so yeah it was um, it's very very interesting and I definitely recommend some, you know, for people mm. to, to go vegan and try it because you do feel a lot better and you actually do think about what you're eating yeah yeah, I mean, a very, some very interesting finds, and uh, and hopefully we can we can speak with you again once you go through the other uh, <laughs> the experiment as well. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> awesome, uh, thank you, uh, Hugo, for for being with us, for answering our questions, and sharing your insight into this uh, into this topic with us. Uh, thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.
is the number for you. That was Hugo Turner from the the, the Turner Twins, of course, and uh, they are British adventurers who have undergone a host of world uh, first expeditions to help people learn about our world. Together, they have rowed the Atlantic Ocean, climbed Mount Elbrus, attempted to trek the Greenland ice uh, cap, and have reached several poles of inaccessibility, including the Australian, North, and South American, uh, and the Iberian poles as well. And with that, we're going to be going straight to our last guest for the segment, Professor Tim Spector, uh, who is a, a medically qualified professor of epidemiology and a director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College London. His current work focuses on the, the uh, microbiome and nutrition, and he is a co-founder of the data science company Zoe uh, Limited, which has uh, commercialised a home kit for personalised nutrition. Uh, he also has... Uh, 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 he's also, also led the research... Uh, he is also the, the lead researcher sorry, behind the world's biggest uh, citizen science health project, the Zoe COVID study of over 4 million people for which he was awarded an OBE. Uh, having published more than 900 research articles, he is ranked in the top 100 of the world's most cited scientists by Google. He is the author of four popular science books, uh, including The Diet Myth, Spoon Fed, and the most recent Food for Life, which is a Sunday Times bestseller. And he makes uh, regular appearances on social and mainstream media as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning. Good morning, and thank, <laughs> and thank you for 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 being with us. Um, is uh, the first question that we wanted to ask you, just getting straight into them, really, is is being healthy as simple as switching on to, switching to to a vegan diet, especially just to follow the the months or, or ve- veganary uh, around the corner uh, the corner. Um, no is the simple answer um, it's it's the secret of a healthy diet is it's actually much more flexible than that mm-hmm. um, and it's it's predominantly plant-based so we've done studies of vegans vegetarians omnivores and compared their gut health and you'll know that I'm a big believer in um, focusing on our gut and our mm-hmm. gut microbes that mm-hmm. we have to keep them happy and we found that when we surveyed about 11,000 people the people who um, had the healthiest gut uh, gut microbes and therefore had the best immune system and the best you know resistant diseases aging etc were people who had a large number of plants per week and so the magic figure was 30 different diverse plants but mm-hmm. It didn't matter if they were uh, vegan or vegetarian or omnivore. As long as they had that that list of plants, Mm -hmm. they were pretty healthy. And what we found was that when we looked at vegans, some of them were very healthy indeed and had the healthiest guts and healthiest bodies. But other vegans were were much less healthy than some meat eaters because they were having ultra-processed foods, they were using... Uh, vegan alternatives which are very high in sugars or artificial chemicals or artificial sweeteners and so it, I think we have to start you know veganism is is a mixed bag and I think what's more important is if you want to be healthy is actually um, trying to get a diversity of whole plants in your diet um, it's about the magic 30 is what you aim for it's which includes nuts and seeds and berries, etc., 
that includes things like coffee, which is a plant. Um, then you need to you know, pick a variety of rainbow-colored fruits and vegetables to give you the right chemicals in there. You need fermented foods. So um, you can have dairy yogurts and kefirs, but you can also have uh, non-dairy uh, kefir and uh, kimchi, kombucha, sauerkraut, some things. And then finally, um, you need to avoid ultra-processed foods. And, and, and the fifth one is probably, we think, is adding a bit of fasting um, to restrict the times you're eating. So a sort of minor mini Ramadan most, <laughs> most days. Most days. And, and that, that combination seems to be um, the general advice that we're giving at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before you, we actually spoke to uh, Hugo Turner. Uh, could you tell us about uh, the experiment you did with him and uh, about identical twins and micro uh, microbiome mix? Yeah, so um, the Turner twins are, are one of the 16,000 twins on our books. And if anyone listening wants to join, then just go to Twins UK and um, become a volunteer. But we they've done a number of different experiments with us over the years and um, one of them was when and we, we asked one of them to, to go vegan for um, yeah. a few months and see how it they fared and there was a difference in their performance etc uh, and a difference in their microbes but what we've we've seen is that you know it's easier for some people to go vegan than others and um, some people, I mean, I went vegan myself for six weeks, mm-hmm. um, but I found I missed cheese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I didn't miss meat, but uh, yeah. for me, cheese was a big problem. But everyone has a personalized response to food, and I think that's important, and that's why we mustn't draw too many examples just from someone we know, because all of us react very differently to food, and that's what these Zoe studies have shown is that you know, we've now given 50,000 people in the US and the UK identical meals mm. and we, sh- we show a tenfold difference in how they respond to that food in terms of their blood sugar or their blood fats mm. so, and their hunger levels and their energy levels afterwards. So I think we all have to realize we all, you know, there are some general rules that are good to follow but also that we're all very unique and that's because we all have a unique set of gut microbes. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, and just lastly, there we are coming up to the nine o'clock news. Uh, besides a diverse diet comprised of whole foods, um, what other tips uh, could you offer our listeners from, from your recently published t- uh, title, Food for Life, the New Science of uh, Eating Well? Well, I think it's to look at food in a different way. So ignore calories is one, one of my advice uh, if, and, and focus on the quality of food. Never go for low-fat products. Um, because they've got other chemicals added into them. Try and increase the amount of fiber in your diet, and um, if you have three, three coffees or three black coffees a day, that's actually very good for your health and your heart. And I know uh, that's better than black tea. Green tea is sort of in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and <coughs> even things like dark chocolate can be actually good for you, but milk chocolate is not good for you. So. Yeah. But lots of other things that people can add, and adding lots of nuts and seeds as well is a is another really good way to uh, increase your diversity of your foods and your and your your gut health. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
thank you, uh, Professor Spector, for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight into this uh, very interesting topic, um, uh, something which has caused uh, a, a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of widespread news as well. A lot of people are going vegan as well, uh, especially due to these months and other things on social media. Uh, so thank you for that, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. My pleasure, and hope everyone goes out and experiments. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Professor Tim Spector, um, who was sharing his thoughts with us. Uh, he's a medically qualified professor of epidemiology and director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College London. Um, his current work uh, focuses on the microbiome uh, and nutrition. He is uh, co-founder of the data science company Zoe Limited as well, which has commercialised their home kit for personalised nutrition. Um, he is uh, uh, he's published uh, more than 900 research articles and is ranked in the top 100 of the world's most cited scientists by Google as well. And he is sharing his thoughts uh, with us. Um, and with that, uh, just just uh, one or two last things before wrapping up today's show. Um, it, it is essential to mention uh, that Muslims are obligated to eat food that is not only halal, uh, but also tayyib, uh, which can be translated crudely as maybe good or clean and wholesome. Um, and over-processed foods uh, could not be considered tayyib. And the reason for this is, uh, depending on the interpretation by some people, um, as often these qualities are lost within the processing, uh, while all natural foods uh, retain these. Um, if we if we go to um, the Holy Quran as well, it mentions the fig and the olive. Um, and th- these are, of course, beneficial to the diet and also vegan as well. Um, so, of course, there's so many uh, different um, things which are, are mentioned in the Holy Quran and in Islam. Uh, but, of course, t- uh, t- we are coming up to the news now, so time doesn't permit us to go through them. But thank you all for, for listening and for joining in. We hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. And here is the nine o'clock news.